0: The book of Judges. So remember after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshipping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites. And eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here.
1: Well, good morning Grace Covenant. It is great to be seen. <laughs> here we are another week together as we're going through the Bible story. We're reading through and and, and hearing sermons about that. Honestly, uh, one of the best resources to know the big picture of the Bible and to catch up with where we are or to remember where we've been is the Bible Project. That is a company that makes exceptional videos. So please consider going there. That's, that's who actually has written our, our, our reading through the Bible program for us. And then they're providing these videos for us whenever we, uh, we need them. So go to their YouTube channel the Bible project. Take a look. Here's how, where we are in the storyline of God's redemptive work. Um, just quickly, it's in Deuteronomy, we found out at the end of the Exodus period that we were commanded to make sure we remembered to obey that the, the the commands of the loving Father. Boom. Then Joshua comes on, and Joshua, is the message there is, have courage to obey, and you'll experience all the blessings of God. And now, now we enter the book of Judges, and Judges, they just keep forgetting over and over, or maybe they don't have the courage to obey. I don't know, but it it is like seven terrible funerals in a row. That's what it's like to read through the book of Judges, and it's it's this downward cycle that descends into ruin, and why does that happen? Because they forget they forget. And as as a matter of fact, you can see that the cycles that they're going through are about 40 to 50 years apart. So why are they forgetting? Because the parents aren't passing on the rule of Deuteronomy to remember and, and the encouragement of Joshua to have courage to obey. And so they just keep making the same mistake over and over again. And each generation has to learn things the hard way, but the hard way gets harder as the book progresses or digresses whichever but there's another way of living life (laughs) it's right there in the book of deuteronomy deuteronomy 6 hear o israel and and obey the commands of god and then you're you're gonna love how he fulfills the promises that he's given you in in the land of milk and honey and then it, it goes on hear o israel love the lord your god with all your heart with all your mind with all your strength Write these commands on your heart, it says. Impart them to your children. When, when you're, when you're uh, sitting at home, when you're running errands, when you are laying down, when you are rising up, keep this, these convictions passing on to generation after generation so they don't have to live the book of Judges. What are, you know, when I was writing this, I was thinking, wait a minute, Grace Covenant Church is 50 years old. What are we doing about that? How are we remembering and passing on? I thought I'd just take a quick little application just for our church to let you know what we've been doing over the years. In the, and most recently, every single ministry has strategically uh, begin to invest in the men and the women of that ministry in imparting the core values of our church, our beliefs and convictions. So whether it's the men's ministry and the women's ministry and some of the adult ministries here, but also uh, the college students are invested in that, in that context and even upper upperclassmen in the high school ministry. Uh, two years ago, we hired the, what's called the table group, Pat Lencioni, Patrick Lencioni's famous uh, management, uh, what, what do you call it? enterprise. enterprise. Uh, we hired uh, their, probably their best person for working with churches. He was one of the first employees for the table group. He looked at our workplace environment, scored us the highest church that he'd ever dealt with. And then in our year review with him, he said, you're better than you did the previous year. Since our workplace was not needed not not needing too much tune up he said let 's go on to the next part, and that is the communication and the clarification of your big values and so uh, Dan Walters, our moderator for the elder board and and our executive pastor Ray anderson they 've been implementing clarification and, implement and communication of the core values of grace, so when you keep hearing us say things like we, our purpose is to guide people to become like Christ in all of life, and relational discipleship is spirit plus truth plus plus uh, relationships. That's that's the message that we're trying to pass down to another generation. Another thing we've added because of the lessons that we can learn from Deuteronomy and Joshua is uh, three years ago we started bringing men onto our elder board to experience uh, leadership in the context of being an elder. They were invited to nearly every meeting. And we wanted these guys to understand what it's like it, to serve in a church, the complexity, uh, uh, maybe sometimes the emotional stress, the stewardship of being a, a shepherd to a flock. And, and that's been a pretty big success for us. Now, this year, uh, going into this year, one of the elders, Matt Pennies, has actually designed a curriculum it's more formal in that training because it's our hope to bring on four guys this coming fall to expand even the number of elders on our elder board. That's just our expression as a church of what we can le- learn from Deuteronomy and Joshua and how we can be warned by this book we're looking at today called Judges. We're imparting our convictions and beliefs to the people that are younger than us. There are many lessons in the book of, jo- in the book of Judges. But there's this overarching lesson that continues to repeat itself purposefully. And, and the, the book itself, and particularly the book, the, the storyline we're gonna look at today because he's like an archetype, Samson. The book itself and Samson, it, it's like a, it's, in a, it's like if, if it were a book by itself, this is what the cover of the book would look like. It would be mistakes. It could be the purpose in life is to be a warning for others. That's what Judges is about. And when we look at the life of Samson, the context is, I, I said earlier that Judges descends into moral depravity and their spiritual life is ruinous. Samson is, it is at the end of that descent. And, and the question, like in Judges 13.1, and again, the Israelites did evil in the, in the eyes of Yahweh. So Yahweh delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There's that 40 years imprisonment again. And the question is Has Israel hit their bottom? Uh, Are they at the end of that dead end street yet? Is this it? Are they going to learn this time? Because now it, enter Yahweh. Yahweh has this dramatic intervention in this place because now it's gotten so bad it's getting good. Okay, the story is a barren woman is visited by an angel two times. And, and he, he says, look, though you're barren, you're going to have a child. And Hebrews reading this storyline in the context of this book are saying, at last, at last. This is a story that sounds like like Abraham and Sarah being visited or, or later on, Hannah and getting a miraculous uh, uh, child. Here's our story. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you're going, you going to conceive and have a son. Now, See to it that you don't drink. You drink no wine or other ferment drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall be used on his head, because this boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Wow. <laughs> now, what what is Mentioned there is that your son will be a Nazarite. And let me explain this because it's critical to understanding the story itself. In the Old Testament, there was a set of rules or prescriptions that God sets up, and it's called a Nazarite vow because there are times or seasons when people will say, I want to be separate and dedicated to the Lord. And so the Lord said, Yeah, okay, this is what this looks like. So in, in Numbers uh, chapter six, I think it's in chapter six, it rolls out, it says, This is how you are to be set apart for God set apart to God set apart from the common the first thing is it, this vow it's called the vow of separation to Yahweh and the first thing is that you don't eat or drink anything from a grape you don't drink grape juice or wine you don't you don't you don't eat raisins or grapes or even the seed or the skin you're going that's a sign of your separateness to Yahweh Another declaration of this vow is a vow of separation to Yahweh is that no razor touches your head. You don't shave your face. You don't cut your hair at all. The third is this, the separation separation vow, the Nazarite vow to Yahweh is that you don't go near anything that's dead. And it even says if your mother or father or your sister or brother were to die, you can't get near that dead mammal. Stay away. And this this vow is to show that you're separated to God for a purpose, for a time. Look what it says in chapter uh, 6, verse 8 of Numbers. And throughout the period of his or her separation, he or she will be consecrated to Yahweh. Now, in almost every case that we find in the Bible, Old and New Testament, when people take a Nazarite vow, it's for a season. But when we read this story, we realize that not only is this a miraculous birth, but this is a big thing planned for Samson. His whole life will be an expression of a Nazarite vow. And it begins with his conception, with his mother being a Nazarite while she's having this child. And why is that? Because God has big plans for this man, Samson, to deliver Israel from the Philistines. God is going to separate him. He is to be separated to Yahweh. And, 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 and in that, he's supposed to stay away from grapes. He's supposed to not cut his hair. He's supposed to never uh, go near a dead animal. Separated for this purpose. God loves Samson and has wonderful plans for his life. Just go along, Samson. Just be God's man. God is providing for Israel a hero, a hero. Now, to understand this story, listen carefully. Samson is Israel. Samson is a picture of Israel. Watch this as we go through, because you're going to see that what he does is what Israel's story is. And wait, let's add something. Samson is like us. John Milton says this about Samson. Oh, mirror of our fickle state. God loves Samson and has a wonderful plan for his life. God loves Israel and has a wonderful plan for his life. God loves you and me and has a wonderful plan for our life. And we need to make sure that we remember to obey and have the courage to obey or we could end up like Samson. So while we go through this storyline, let's make sure that we kind of have that mirror handy. Let's look at the displays of raw power of this person that's set apart for a special purpose of God. This exhibition of power, it happens rapid fire, one chapter after another. Chapter 14, uh, Samson's walking down a path and a roaring lion comes to attack him. And the Bible says, and the spirit of Yahweh came upon him with power and so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as one might tear apart a young goat. Never tore a goat apart, but boy, he did it just like a young goat. Leaves him there on the side of the road. Next chapter, uh, Samson is ambushed by a thousand Philistine, or, uh, Philistines and, and he, he picks up the, this, the jawbone of a donkey. Look what it says. Uh, and the Philistines came around, uh, towards him shouting and the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men Samson writes a little song uh, to sing on the way home from from this slaughter. He says, uh, with a donkey's jawbone, I made a donkey out of them. With this donkey's jawbone, I killed a thousand men. Then in chapter 16, he uh, finds himself uh, in a major city in the Philistines, like a capital city. It's called Gaza. And while he's there, he falls asleep. And the people of Gaza, the men of Gaza, realize Samson's sleeping. And he's like, let's, let's close the gates and lock the gates and seal them in here. And in the morning, we'll kill him. Well, Samson gets up in the middle of the night and kind of sees what's going on. And look, listen to what he does. He grabs the gates. The city is only as strong as this gate. So you can imagine how fortified a major city would be with these gates. And so he pull, he takes the doors off. The, the rails and puts them down. Then he pulls, it says he rips the post out of the ground. And then the crossbeam that keeps it to tight, the lock, the latch, he puts that on top of the doors, on top of, of, of the post. And then he puts it on his shoulders and carries it 38 miles uphill, <laughs> uphill, and leaves it there. Why? Why did he just leave? Because it's going to take four ox cart crews to walk 38 miles. And those men are going to have to load those doors and the posts and the crossbar and come home for 38 miles and the whole time. No one's saying a word, but everybody's thinking the same thing. Don't mess with Samson. Don't God has special plans for him. God loved Samson and had wonderful plans for his life. But Samson... He either doesn't know about his weaknesses and passions or doesn't care. He, he, Proverbs, I think Proverbs 16, 32 was written for him, or at least him in mind. It says, Better is a patient person, I would say in his case, stronger is a patient person than a warrior. The one with self control is stronger than the one who takes a city. Sure, he's strong. But Samson serves Samson. Samson is like an example of the many different ways a person can ruin their lives, even though God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. And his story, the way it's written, it's supposed to show us, because he's like Israel, none of his mistakes are like one and dones. He's a repeat offender. He keeps making the same mistake over and over again. It's like, look, quit falling into the same hole. You don't just walk around it. And he does it. He does it. Sam, listen. This is Samson's formal introduction to who he is. This is chapter fourteen, verse one. This is how we know what kind of man he is. And Samson went to town, to the town of Timnah. Uh, and he saw a woman there in Timnah, and it was one of the daughters of the Philistines. And so he came back and he told his father and mother, and he said, uh, I saw this woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, and now therefore get her for me to be my wife. Well, you would imagine the father and the mother protested this and said, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives in your own tribe or among all the people of Israel that you'd have to go and take a wife from these uncircumcised Philistines? Here's his whole worldview. And Samson said to his father, go and get her for me. She looks good to me. She looks good to me. I mean, the parents are like, really, Samson? In all of Israel, you can't find one woman that could be your wife. He wants this woman because he can't have this woman. He wants what he can't have. He does whatever is right in his own eyes. You know, we say around here. I bet you've heard it a hundred times. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. When you look about how God thinks, about how Samson thinks about God, it's it's very important. He has all these outward signs of a Nazarite vow to be separated to God, but he doesn't care to be used by God. He actually uses God. He's supposed to be set apart from the people. He wants to be like everyone else. And he's just going to use God. He uses all his God-given gains, all this supernatural strength that he has. He uses it just for himself. He doesn't care about anyone else, and he doesn't care about glorifying God. That's his view of God. And you watch how he systematically unravels and violates each one of his vows. His vows, his Nazarite vows, to be separated to Yahweh for a purpose. He... Uh, Remember, the the Philistine woman, he ends up getting married to her. And at the wedding, it's in the Philistine town and there's a giant vineyard. And so he spends a whole week in a wine brawl, you know, uh, chugging event with his Philistine in-law, groomsmen. Violating that commitment to stay away from the grapes. And you know why he was drinking wine all week with his Philistine in-laws? Because it looked good to him. And he did what was right in his own eyes. The next vow was staying away from dead animals. Remember that cool story where he grabs that lion and tears it apart like a goat? Yeah. Well, he comes by that same path later on and he sees the carcass of that lion and it had been decomposing and some bees came and made a hive out of it. And he sees in that hive honey. And so he go, reaches down and scoops up a whole lot of this honey and starts eating it, digesting this honey, takes it home to his parents, gives it to them so that they might be violated by something, by something unclean, doesn't tell them about it. And do you know why he ate the honey from a carcass, a dead animal that he's supposed to stay away from? Do you know why he did that? Because it looked good to him. And Samson did what was ever right In his own eyes, Samson had no power over his appetites. And it doesn't appear that he even cares about it. Every single altercation that he had with the Philistines was because, and put himself in danger, was a result of his passions. He was in places where he wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. Three times, three times that he has these encounters with the Philistines, all three times he's with a woman. A Philistine woman, a person he's not supposed to be with. And each time he's like falling into the same hole and he won't go around it. Let me just summarize the women of Samson. Okay. The, the people, the women in his life, all Philistine women. The first one, his wife, that's what leads to the violation of the grapes where he's drinking all that wine. The second one, remember he tears the gates out of the Gaza, Gaza, that's major city. You know why he was in Gaza sleeping. He was visiting a Philistine prostitute. And the third woman in his life, we know her name, Delilah. Samson and Delilah. Have I read Proverbs sixteen thirty two yet? I, I don't know. Let's look at it again. Better, stronger uh, is a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than the one who can take a city. Samson just took a city single-handedly. He'd be stronger if he had just a little bit of self-control. Delilah, her name literally means the weak one. Literally means the weak one. And the passage says this, and Samson loved Delilah. Well, Delilah loved money. And she is offered pretty much a lifetime of money to entice him. Remember that, to entice Samson to find the secret of his strength, And in this storyline, it's a metaphor his hair is the secret of his strength, his long flowing hair. It's it's his last sign of his Nazarite vow that he is set apart to Yahweh for this purpose. And again, he is is, uh, is asked by Delilah, Delilah is enticing him one time. How can you be like any other man? And he tells him something and it doesn't work. Second time, how can you be like any other man, Samson? He tells her something that's not true and it doesn't work. Three times, (laughs) he says, Samson, tell me how you can become like any other man and it doesn't work. And now let's go full court press from the weak one. And then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times now, and you have not told me the secret of your great strength. So here it comes. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed unto death. (laughs) So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God, to Yahweh, from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak like any other man. Dramatic music. He was separated to God, separate to God. If they cut his hair, he'll be separated from God. It's just a picture. If you cut off his hair, you will cut him off from Yahweh. And he tells her that because That's how he can become like everyone else. She is told to entice him. She entices Samson. There's the word entice. The Hebrew word means to find an opening, a point of vulnerability. Hey, Paris, aim your arrow at Achilles' heel. Yeah, that's where he's weak. It's the only place he's weak. Our enemies, often know our weaknesses better than we do. They take them seriously. Three times, Samson is confronted like brawn for brawn with the Philistines. And each time, the Philistines are slaughtered, humiliated, routed, and mocked. So, you know, somewhere they had a meeting where they said, Hey, we keep shooting cannonballs at this man, and he punches right through them. And maybe some intern said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we send, I don't know, a pretty little lady at him? And they do. And she is putty. He is putty in her hands. He does whatever he's told. James talks about enticing. But each of you, when he is tempted, when, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust enticed by their own lust, The Greek word for entice means luring with bait, luring with bait. You want to catch fish? Ask any, even novice fisherman. they'll tell you. You got to choose the right bait and you gotta have to know how to tease those fish to want that bait. That's what, that's what enticing means here. He's been enticed. He's been played. He doesn't have a chance against this weak one. The rest of the story goes like this. So he, you know, his hair, right, is representing this, right? And and that's all that's left that shows that he's been separated to God and for God. And now it comes, this is kind of the the climax of his storyline. What is the greatest warrior in the book of Judges going to do with the most important brawl that he's ever going to have, right? This is life and death. What is, how does Samson fight in this one? He doesn't. He sleeps through it. (laughs) Look what the passage says. And after putting him to sleep in her lap, she called for someone to shave off his hair and so began to subdue him and all his strength left him. All uh, that God had for Samson was lost. And do you know why? Because it looked good to Samson. And Samson did whatever was right in his own eyes. And now it doesn't look like his eyes are gonna last long. Because the story continues where now that he's weakened like any other man, it says it's progressive. They seize him and then they gouge out his eyes. No more lusting at our Philistine women. And then, then they take him to Gaza, friends. Guess what, they're still repairing the gates that he tore down. They take him to Gaza, the place where he humiliated them. They bring him in there and they bind him with shackles and put him on a millstone so he can, he can grind uh, wheat for them like an, like an ox, like the ox that he is. That's what's happening. And then it says in 22 of the last chapter, verse 16, it says, chapter 16, verse 22, he says, but his hair began to grow back. Wait, the story apparently is not over yet. But here's the last scene. They bring him to Gaza and then they had this huge celebration, this party. But look what he's reduced to. And the rulers of the Philistines assembled to the great to sacrifice to their god Dagon to celebrate that our God has delivered us from Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And now the temple was crowded with men and women and all the rulers from all the Philistine cities were there. Even on the roof total, there were 3,000 men and women gathered there. And look what it says. And while they were there in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson so that he can entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison. So he performed for them. He went from judge to jester. He does, he, his name needs little son. And now his whole world is dark. He was blind to his passions and now he's literally blind. And people, I'm sure, are screaming, hey, Samson, you traded your Nazarite vow for your eyes. You want that back? I'll bet you do. There is no single person in the 400 years of Judges that falls further than Samson. Great potential. God loved Samson and had wonderful things planned for his life. But that's not what Samson wanted. The story continues where Samson arranged himself to be put between two pillars and he prays one of his only two prayers. He says, oh, sovereign Yahweh, remember me, please, God, and strengthen me just this one more time. Let me with one blow, let me re- uh, re- give, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Even his prayer, it's like he's, he's not thinking of the glory of God or the safety of Israel. I just want to get revenge for them taking my eyes from me. So, you know what? They they put him between the pillars, and he pushes them away, and he says, let the Philistines die with me. Here's what's on his gravestone. This is the epitaph for his life. He did more dying for God than he ever did living for God. That's some funeral. Let's just remember, Samson is a mirror. It's supposed to be Samson's life is a picture of Israel in the book of Judges. And he was a holy man. They were supposed to be a holy nation. He wanted to be like everyone else. Israel wants to be like everyone else. He sought foreign women. They sought foreign gods. And why? Because it looked good to them. And They did whatever they want in their own eyes. Anything that was right in their own eyes. But Samson's a mirror for us too. We can be like Samson. That's, that's the lesson in here. And it, like, is it any wonder? Is it any wonder when Jesus is teaching us to pray in Matthew chapter six, he says, he says this part, deliver us from temptation and then deliver us from the evil one. In Matthew's book, it says, it delivers from the evil one, temptation. Deliver us from temptation. That's our bent. We, we're each, like, bent towards certain temptations more maybe uh, than other people. They're e- we're easier to fail. Deliver us from those temptations because deliver us from the evil one. Evil one is the devil. It's Satan and boy did, he knows how to fish. He knows what bait to use and he knows how to entice us to want to take that bait. Do you know? Do you know what your bent is? The devil does. A stronghold a stronghold is a phrase we use in church, and it's in the Bible, and it is, it is a choice. It, it, it requires permission on your part. And what's happening in a stronghold is it's, you're, you're in a place where you have a temptation, it's a bent, and you ignore it, but the devil doesn't. And you're fundamentally, either actively or passively, saying, deliver us into temptation, not deliver us from temptation." There are a lot of appetites to choose from. And again, we have particular ones to ourselves, knowing that's important. C.S. Lewis does a marvelous job of kind of summarizing the various appetites of our soul and flesh and, and kind of puts them in two categories. Let me read this to you because it's a kind of a warning to us if we just think Samson's about physical temptations. He says, Lewis says this. Now the sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least Bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. Ah, the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong. The, of, of boasting or patronizing someone. Of backbiting. The pleasure of power. The pleasure of hatred. He said the, the proud, the avarice, the self-righteous, they're the ones in real danger. He says, I fight oh, the war on two fronts. Here's watch this quote. There's the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. And that's why self, the self, the cold, that's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church it may be far nearer to hell than the prostitute. Now, of course, it's better to have neither. I just want you to see that sometimes the, the sins and the temptations that are happening in our soul, these diabolical sins, are the ones that we need to be really concerned about. It's a picture here. The the evil one knows this about us. Deliver us from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. If you, could, if you could imagine the evil one having conversation, maybe training a young demon on how to, how to do this, how to select the bait. And the, the young demon says, you know, we've been throwing all sorts of hardship and, and difficulties and even physical injury at this person, and they just keep getting back up and they don't curse God. And the devil says, try giving them a promotion. See what happens then. Or, uh, you know, this young lady, we've put her in some terrible work situations, dreadful bosses, toxic environments, and yet she still trusts you. Why don't you, I don't know, give her her own company. See what happens when she thinks she has power or she thinks she can write the rules. Then watch. You're going to enjoy that. A stronghold is when we have a bent towards a temptation and we ignore it, but the devil doesn't. And we invite ways to deliver us into temptation. I just, I just want to conclude in my, in my experience, I have found that people, people just don't, they, they, we are like Samson. And, and we are ignorant or ignore our weaknesses, our temptations. I mean, it seems like the last person that is involved in a plot line that is full of sorrow or hopelessness or, or, or dread, you know, the last person that ought to be reading that or listening to that music or watching that on television is the very person that's doing that very thing. The last person that should be entertained by revenge media is the very person that thinks that they should be in charge of giving out justice. The person that seems to be tempted most by being afraid is the one who spends the most time watching the news. Why? Keep falling into the same hole. Don't be Samson. Self-righteous perfectionism has destroyed far more relationships than adultery ever did. The diabolical you, right, the thing that's inside of me, that should be most concerning to me are the things that make me feel like I can do whatever is right in my own eyes. God loves you. Remember this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He really does. And you're gonna love what he does with your life if you remember the commands and impart them. And, and, Put them in your heart. If you choose to have the courage to obey, (laughs) it'll be greater than you could ever ask or imagine. Your obedient dependence upon the Lord, that's what glorifies God. That's what will glorify God. And that's the meaning and the purpose of all creation, to glorify God. Let's not be Samson. Let's do this. As a church, all over the city, maybe the country the world, why don't we all pray together the Lord's Prayer? We'll use, I think, the word debt instead of trespass, okay? So join me. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Grace. It's been great to share this moment with you.